Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end... I give writing advice, I look at the first pages of readers, I sometimes, I I was going to say teach creative writing lessons, but that might be a a little too grand. I sometimes kind of done some exercises on the show, don't want to do myself down, but I've I've dabbled in a uh, a few follies, and I sometimes talk to other authors as well and ask them their experiences of making books and stories and story adjacent things. And today I'm talking on the show to the uh, poet and uh, memoirist and essayist and novelist Selena Godden about, well, uh, mainly about her new novel, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Uh, I really like saying the novel title because it just sounds like I'm chanting for Mrs. Death. but um, also about, you know, just about writing and about, unsurprisingly, about death as well. Um, but it was really nice catching up with her. Like, my first ever paid gig, poetry gig that I did was with Selena. Way back when, when she'd been performing for quite a while as well. I was supporting her and um, in Liverpool. And uh, that's not entirely relevant to the discussion except to say that um we've known each other and done lots of gigs together for quite a while now and so um it was really really nice to just use this podcast uh purely for my own well not purely but for my own enjoyment of just having an excuse to catch up with people that I haven't seen for a while because of partly because of the pandemic and partly because becoming a dad I've not been able to do many live gigs so that was lovely but it happened to coincide with Selena's novel coming out and it getting loads of amazing reviews and loads of buzz and loads of people picking it up and reading it and going, this is amazing. So it's not completely self-indulgent. I've just managed to fold self-indulgence into something that um, happens to be really wonderful because, I, you know, you may even have read her novel yourself and uh, get to talk to her and, and chat about writing a novel and also because it's a novel that has loads of poetic elements and I know sort of other people I know from the poetry scene who I've spoken to over the past year or so um, like Musara Kwonga and uh, Inua Elams who both incorporated elements of uh, poetry into their fiction or prose although I, I guess I guess Inuas like was written in well, I want to say Terzarima, if I remember correctly. But but you know, to to varying degrees, there's elements of that, and we talk about form and we talk about all those things. But at the centre of it, of Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is is you know, it is a is a character-led voice novel with some strong voices in it, talking about mortality and talking about the world, and it's really funny. Uh because I've kind of led with the kind of high art part, I just want to point out it's really readable and funny and engaging. And um, that was a real in, that was a real pleasure for me because it took me back to 
the times when I've got to sit in the audience and watch Selena perform and that mix of sort of power and playfulness coming together that ability to take on big subjects and then be funny with them and entertaining and engaging um it was just really nice it was like a real treat for me and and uh, you know on a craft level just seeing this on the page and going oh like of course of course it reads like this of course it's amazing of course immediately as I start reading the book it subverts what I think a book is and what you're allowed to do with a book of course I'm reading what I think is a disclaimer at the beginning a straight up disclaimer and oh no I'm into the book already and you're already wrong footing me and playing with this and then taking it as far as you can and then you know I'm part of the game as well and this is like a performance poem and of course it does all those things because it's Selena and because she just you know just enjoys doing those things so that's who I spoke to today uh, a, a small note on the recording uh Obviously, you know, I'm not able to meet people in real life, so we um, chatted over Zoom. And about 50 minutes in, one of our recording devices uh, stopped working. Now, fortunately, having done other episodes where stuff is packed up, and this has happened, um, I, I have always have multiple layers of redundancy built into the system because I'm like fiendishly paranoid, especially after the episode where after speaking to nick harkaway for i want to say two and a half hours um we lost the recording and then he amazingly we just did it again the next day and spoke for another two odd hours so he's genuinely i did like over five hours of interview with him in two days and we talked about completely different stuff um and that was wonderful because he's a great person and you know, I'm sure me and Selena could have talked for ages, but fortunately nothing was lost. But just say that like about the 15 minute mark, there's a, uh, a noticeable loss of uh, fidelity in her uh, voice. Um, so you might want to listen to that part of the interview with headphones in or something like that, just so you can um, make everything out. Aside from that, uh, it's all good. There's a link in today's uh, in the show notes of today's episode, so where you can go and uh, grab a copy of Selena's book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And uh, if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, there's also a link to my coffee page, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare, where you can chuck me a few beans to help me keep the lights on and just support the podcast so I can go on making content, speaking to lovely, amazing, interesting writers, uh, either allowing you to hear the craft advice of your favourite writers or introducing you to writers who you don't know uh, so you can go and check out their books. But um, thank you to listeners who've been supporting the podcast. It's amazing um, uh, because, you know, it's kind of entirely voluntary to get anything out of it except that warm glow and the continued existence of the podcast. And yet people are continually doing that. And so I'm really, really grateful. And it speaks so wonderfully of the community we built up. That's it. I'm not going to say any more. Um, well, I am, but um, only with me chatting to uh, Selena uh, and often uh, talking quite enthusiastically about her books. I'm, I'm super conscious in this interview that I there was quite a lot of times where I framed, made sort of large... 
large kind of like assertions and and framed large theses on Selena's work and then simply invited her to agree with me or disagree with me and and and, and apparently believe that that's how you do interviews is it just makes statements and then wait for the person to either say that's nonsense or agree um but that's how it is um and and, and Selena of course dele- de- dealt with it incredibly well uh so uh, and actually, oh yeah, and it's also like you know my background with Celine is also she was the one who organised my first ever book launch as well when she used to run the book club boutique and I went and did my night when We Can't All Be Astronauts came out. She organised that night as well, and I got to do a night with her then. So she's been part of my sort of my own experience of publishing and becoming a writer and being a performance poet in every aspect of my career and done so many festivals with her over the years and lots of different events and done stuff with live bands with her uh which we reference in the episode so you know this is someone who has been sort of a a peer and a kind of mentor figure and part of my creative life for years and years and so it was a real treat to speak to her and i hope you enjoy hearing her talk about her work too. This is me chatting to Selena Garden. We've talked, because we've done so many gigs together, so like I know some of this I have a sense of, but I still want to ask you anyway. And actually it's really fun for me because I often get to sit down and just like grill people that I've worked with for a while and gone, can you just tell me this and this? And I just wonder, like, when was the first time you can remember that you, the first time where you were like, Oh, like words are really and stories are going to be really important to me. Oh, well, I think that goes way back to childhood, Tim, really. I think uh, when I was a kid, just writing short stories and, and making up stories and poems for school. I mean, I'm talking seven, eight years old um, and I was a massive, avid reader. One of my greatest um, um most exciting moments in childhood was when I got a grown-up library card because I'd read everything in our children's in our children's primary school library and so they had to let me have a grown-up library card so it's like my big thing was to go every Thursday or whatever once a week down to the library on my own and pick books and then you know read them and bring and then that was like my big thing that I really loved as a kid books and writing and reading so it's it's a very much a childhood thing I suppose I mean I suppose you do what you're congratulated for you do where you go where the love is so I got a lot of um, praise for my stories at school and so that encouraged me to keep writing and then the more I wrote the more praise I got so it was kind of seeking that being valid in that way I suppose but also it was an escapism and a a survival technique and, and a way to kind of yeah kind of escape a little bit I think books and writing I think it still is um yeah can you remember what kind of um things you were writing about then well I really really liked writing crime and horror (laughs) (laughs) as a little girl I wrote very very dark um stories where there was always like some evil stepmother or an evil witch or or an evil wizard or something and ghost stories and haunted house stories um and then I used to make these little radio plays I had a little tape recorder where you press play and record 
and I used to make a lot of a lot of kind of horror and ghost and crime stories on there um you know making amazing sound effects if you get a belt like a belt that you wear around your trousers and you whip the sofa it sounds like it's whipping someone <laughs> so then you know it'd be like the beatings <laughs> you know the orphan being beaten and then the orphan would have to run away and then the ghost would be chasing the orphan and yeah whatever so the, these this kind of stuff was uh was the stuff that kept me going as a kid really um, and the books I were read, was reading, I suppose, kind of informed that. Like I really loved Grimm's fairy tales and fairy tale books and stories where there's a, you know, there's a the evil and the evil versus good. You know, those were my stories. I reckon. Did you have a lot of people I've spoken to have like either like a mentor figure or like I I suppose I sometimes think of them as like a permission figure, a person who goes. And it's not necessarily someone in their life. Sometimes it's like just an author or an artist they encounter and go, oh, you're allowed to do this. And sometimes it's someone who physically is there and says to them, you're good at this. I want to see more of this. Was there like a figure like that, either in your life or aspirational that was kind of like encouraging you or made you think, oh, people write, people make stories? Um, I suppose... Um, I suppose... Teachers were kind at school, but and you know and and um, but I think but, but but being more more specific, I think when I moved to London um, and I worked at Acid Jazz Records, and the first person that that really made me feel like I could be a poet, or the first person that called me a poet was Jock Scott, the Scottish poet mm. Jock Scott. So I blame a lot of this on him, really. And then it was Jock Scott that introduced me to John Cooper Clarke. He introduced me to um, Ian Dury and the Blockheads and, and all these incredible, um, and Howard Marks and all these incredible, very ma- it was very male, actually, my introduction to writing and my introduction to poetry. It was very, really, it was really like a boys' club. And there was me, like some sort of skinny 19, 20-year-old, just, just going, this is where the party is, you know, because they're all big drinkers. And it was so much fun. I loved the early 90s. It was, it was so much fun. Um, but I didn't, really, I didn't really have a big sister. Um, and so I really try and be one to young poets now. Because um, I think I could have, I might have made some different decisions and choices if I'd had a big sister, as opposed to loads of naughty, naughty blokes making me down loads of pints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember the first time I think I might be wrong, but I feel like the actually I'm going to take that back. They didn't make me drink loads of pints. I was very interested in drinking <laughs> loads of pints. Let me take that back. Sorry, what were you going to say? It's kind of put. Well, I was going to say is yeah. I suppose it is pushing an open door although i don't know i feel like i don't want to immediately get into the kids today um kind of uh well it's nice in a way but i do feel like there was the culture of drinking in britain especially amongst younger people i do feel it's changed a bit if you look at like the number of teenage drinkers now it's dropped by about i think something crazy like 80 percent or something like i feel like growing up in the well, for me, it would have been the 90s, but I feel like drinking a lot, being a binge drinker around those times was, it was a bit like peeing your pants during a monsoon. Like nobody noticed because everyone was doing it. And there was, you know, every everybody <laughs> loved to drink. Whereas now, teenagers are a little bit more, I don't know, like drinking culture seems to have changed. How how was that like, do you, can you talk a bit about like, I, I'm just interested, because the first time, I think the first time I met you was at a gig at Ross's gig in Liverpool I think where there was lots of alcohol involved and I've I've always felt like poetry for me and and booze were like 
intertwined they were two things that I did together yes and I really yeah, enjoyed that me too. as well and I wondered if you could talk a bit like about how that kind of like party atmosphere and gigging in pubs and places where everyone else was drinking and then writing how that kind of like ended up in, informing your kind of like early work and your style and you know your audiences and stuff like that well I think a lot of my early poetry gigs this will be just before I met you guys um so it's sort of talking like 1995 1996 kind of those gigs were very often intertwined with uh, with kind of um, with rave and with with ra- with raving and clubbing, and there was this whole thing about um, you know literature and clubbing going hand in hand. Around that time, you've got Irvin Welsh bringing out Train Spotting, and you've got the the soundtrack and the music that goes with that, and the DJs attached to that. So and uh, so a lot of my early gigs in the mid nineties, early nineties were either to do with or either entwined with clubbing or punk and this kind of new wave of punk. So um, a lot of my gigs were opening for punk bands, which again is a very hedonistic scene and very so. So this this seemed to very much inform my work in the mid nineties and right up to the well, yeah, continued because that seemed to be where the good you know the really good gigs were. These these gigs weren't some sort of sweaty carpeted room above a pub. These gigs were in you know massive great big venues and with like you know clubbers and stuff, and you'd be doing your poetry over the top of beats and people would be like you know dancing or or um i remember doing one gig with doing lots of gigs with punk bands i used to open for the flying medallions a lot um be like their opening act um and they're in as and of course during that period i was working with music as well like with cold cut and with um, um salt peter and putting beats to my music putting beats to my poetry and making you know and doing sort of rant poetry over the top of like really wild hardcore guitars and beats so all of that kind of all kind of exploded together I think um yeah and then like like I said earlier you know a lot of my my early early inspirations or influences were very male so of course I did the thing that lots of young poets do like I read a lot of Bukowski you know I read a lot of Jack Kerouac I, I kind of followed down that kind of beat poet which again is all very male it took me ages to uh, figure out whether you know, go looking and seek out the women of the beat generation and the women's stories and and amazing writers you know like Carolyn Cassidy and and then further on you know authors you know that that were writing around the same time. Yeah, I I, th- I it's funny because you talking about like that beginning and stuff. It really when we've done gigs um, for say uh, when we've done gigs with a, a a band at like Tung Fu and stuff where there's an improvised band behind you it's 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 really clear that for some poets this is like such a weird thing to have other musicians on the stage while I'm trying to read and <laughs> and, and and for you like where every time I've seen you you're just obviously not only very comfortable but having like incredible fun with it and to a certain extent improvising your poems or expanding them or using the band rather than and I would include myself in this sometimes I've really enjoyed it and sometimes it's been like you're trying to do your performance while like something more interesting is happening on the stage behind you do you know what I mean and you're like um uh hello I'll try and do this but at the moment there's going to be some jugglers and 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 I and and it's really come across how you've like used that rhythm and you've broken up your poems and you've really like lent into it and and it's why it's kind of I think why your stuff always goes down so well in that format 
Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I was writing, writing songs is sort of part of writing lyrics and working with music. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't know there was any such thing as a poet when I was, you know, really young, you know, in my late, in my teenage years, I thought I was going to be a pop star. I thought I was going to be like Naina Cherry. That was my aim. I didn't know you could stand up and just read the stuff without music. My God, I'm getting paid to just read the words. <laughs> it like, so it was, it was actually Jock Scott that, because I, I remember the conversation quite clearly. I would have been about 19. We were in uh, West London in this pub and Jock was about to go on. And we were talking at the bar. We were drinking, obviously. And um, and Jock and I, I said to Jock, oh, I'm not a poet. I said, I do. I write songs. I write lyrics. I've got a pile that's this high and they've got finished written underneath them because they've got a melody. But it's really annoying because I've got a pile that's twice as high that, that have got unfinished written underneath them because they, I can't find tunes for them. They don't make sense musically to me. He goes, has it ever occurred to you that those ones are poems? And I went, ah, I don't write poems, I write songs. You know? And it was, it was very weird to realise that, 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 that how much of the, the rhythm and music of words can be, you know, that, you know how, how lyric writing and poetry writing can be so similar and so married and um, so... Yeah, so that was when I did my first ever gig. Jock Scott did his gig and said, I'm not going to read another poem until Selena, so until Saliva Gloopy gets up. And that was my first uh, first gig ever. Saliva Gloopy, by the way, was one of my first poems that I performed. Because yeah. I feel like um, this is... The, the... I I, what, I, what I don't want to do is I'm very aware that like when people have read my novel and they know that i've got a background in poetry they you know like reviewers immediately jump on that and go oh you can you know you can tell it's written by a poet and i'm like you clearly have not heard any of my poems because you'd know that they are like 90 percent about farting and knobs and you're going like going oh <laughs> it's really great in this kind of description of a, of a of a swallow that um and i'm like well that isn't actually what my stuff's about but i do feel like the line between your work on stage and Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is like is clearer. Like I mean, I I can imagine you delivering it. Do you know what I mean? I I feel like there's much more of a sense of like how are we gonna of like a, a voice and of like how are we how are we gonna like grab the reader and 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 treating the reader's attention as precious. Which I'm not saying like all authors don't do, but I think it, it's really clear when like someone's had to deal with an audience who's like you can see their will to live dying in front of you if you don't entertain them right that consciousness that I want to make each paragraph have something of value not just like well at 50,000 words we'll get we'll get to something that might be interesting but that feeling of like trying to make each sentence count really came across for me thank you that's amazing that's amazing thank you but it, but but I did, you know, with the because our main cat, um, I mean, there's main two main voices in the book. You've got Mrs. Death, Death herself, the boss of Death, and then you've got the writer that's trying to write her memoirs, who's a young poet called Wolf, and so it had to sound like a poet. So I could, in a way, kind of hide in there by making my main character a poet. Therefore, the way that they might speak or the way that they might write their diaries would be possibly poetic. So I could kind of use that as a... Although I didn't really think of that until this minute. But yeah, so I suppose because my main character is is a poet, we have a very poetic memoir of Mrs. Death. Yeah. 
I, I don't don't know if you'd be up for. Is it possible? Would you be willing to read it a tiny bit? Sure, sure. I've got the book just here. Actually, awesome. Ah. Thank you. I just thought like it would be quite good. Maybe we could kind of like we can just ground it in a little and especially like it's such a tease if I'm like going oh I really enjoy you reading your work work now I've said that don't do it let's just continue to allude to the fact that I like it but we won't let anyone else hear that that'll be mine (laughs) (laughs) shall I do it now yeah if you're if you're willing that'd be great okay so here's a here's a paragraph this is Wolf speaking Mrs Death sees me Mrs. Death sold me tobacco. Mrs. Death lives in my cigarettes. Mrs. Death is everywhere. She's hiding in plain sight. She is the working woman. She works in the shops and in the markets and laundrettes and factories. Mrs. Death is the woman we hardly see. The woman we do not care to see. She is the person we ignore. She is the pause in the silence. She is the invisible woman. She is the refugee at the border. She is the cleaner. She is the cab driver. She is the backing singer we never bother to learn the name of. She is nobody and she is everybody. She is the homeless person begging for change outside the train station. Mrs Death is the spirit of the ignored and the saint of the betrayed. She is the first woman. Mrs Death is the first mother of all mothers. She is calling to us all now. She is weeping. She is cradling her crumbling world. She is holding this toxic and wounded planet to her cold breast. She's sitting next to you on the bus. She is amongst us. I got it wrong. Mrs Death is not the wife of death, no. And she is not the mother of death, no. She is death and she gets the final say. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you. <laughs> I'm I, I I'm gonna try and kind of keep I I will kind of keep my um gushing comments until the to the introduction I record later and in that way I sort of won't embarrass you or, or make you feel like you have to um bat them away but I, I would like to start with something kind of like I suppose the most obvious question which is like it's not it's it's yes it all right I'm trying to gussy up where do you get your ideas but what made you want to write about this can you can what was the seed for this for writing this novel for you. Okay, well, there's there's lots of starting points with this one. There's lots of answers to that question. Um, the first first answer could be the day I bought this desk, this desk which I'm speaking to you from right now, and um, and how inspiring I find this piece of chunk of wood. And so that's where the character, the desk, came from. That I actually did go and buy this desk in a closing down old antique shop. Um, a second starting point. Um, is is more personal it is uh, i was going through or i felt like i was going through a dark time and there seemed to be a run of funerals and a lot of a lot of death around me and 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 um and trying in a way to humanize death and have conversations with her she soon became a she and i made this this imagined character um is is another answer um and then i think the more the more the more the maybe the not the truest answer but the strongest answer to this would be the day specifically in december one christmas time walking through spitalfields 
and um and walking down through a long brick lane and i just and i was feeling very down i was really sad and um christmas time is i have a lot of anniversaries my father's anniversary and and my grandmother and we've got a lot of dead in december in our family um a lot of anniversaries i mean and um so i'm walking down brick lane and i quite i kind of hear this voice and it's i know a lot of dead people now I know a lot of dead people now. And it's such a simple line, but it felt like I wasn't, it felt like I was hearing it in a new voice in my head. It wasn't my usual internal dialogue. It wasn't my usual internal narrator. And so I kept walking and then this voice carried on and then it turned into this whole monologue and I walked all down Commercial Road or down past the mosque or all the way, almost all the way down to Bow, just recording in my phone and tapping into my phone, like stopping in doorways and and then it would start again from the beginning. I know a lot of dead people now and I know death is inevitable. And I know, and so that, that chapter in the book almost came out verbatim, like in one chunk. And from there all these other things that I'd been writing started forming, coming in and, and, and it started to, but very much that, that was the voice of Mrs. Death. And that's where the character for her came from. So then I started to think, how would she speak? How would she dress? What would she eat? The eggs thing is a big thing. And, um, and how would she speak to us? And, and, um, and everything that's happening in the world, obviously this book was written before, um, this pandemic, but but there, we've been in a pandemic for a long time with with male violence and the pandemic of male violence, the pandemic of toxic masculinity, um, and then and then of course you know all the the usual things that we've all been very worried about the rise of Trump and and his terrible ideas and and also you know climate chaos and climate emergency. So these were the things I was worrying about before COVID. So. Um, so yeah, so then then what would death say and, and how would she talk to us about these things? So yeah, so then the work started building from there. And I was collecting lots of deaths uh, news, from newspaper stories or more to the point, stories of courage or stories of survival as opposed to stories of unusual deaths. Um, uh, not all of them made the book. The, the I was very strict. The book wasn't to be long. So quite a lot of it got left on the cutting room floor. Oh my floor. God, Selena, you're such um, a better you're such a better person than me. Like that's why it's good. That's such that's <laughs> such that's so good. I'm like I'm like I I went away and I googled this. So you're gonna have to bloody read it because I spent <laughs> I spent all of ten minutes looking this up. So it's going in. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I discipline. did. I did a lot of that. I did a lot of that, Tim, a lot of Googling things and, you know, just very, oh, there's so many strange deaths and there's this story of this woman that turned up at her own funeral, which I didn't get into this book. And there's like real life, life, real life stories of incredible, you know, strangenesses, but um, I couldn't get it all in. But I felt very conscious that if I ever did publish it, because I wasn't even sure I was going to publish it at first or, or that anyone would be interested in such a thing. Um, I don't have, you know, I didn't have a lot of confidence in that. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a book deal when I was making this. There was a freedom there. This was the book I was writing whilst I was 
publishing Pessimism is for Lightweights whilst I was recording and releasing the Livewire album and all the Good Immigrant stuff and doing the Good Immigrant book and all that. So this was kind of like my, when I had jobs to do, this was like the thing I was writing when no one was looking, um, which I kind of like. So this was like my middle of the night write, like just for pleasure. And I think you feel that when you read it, perhaps, you know, that it's not, there's no no deadline, no no money involved, no shadow of how is this commercial, you know? The most consistent thing over everyone I've spoken to is that people's most successful book was also their piss about book. Not like they didn't care, but like that there was some element where they were going, no one's going to be interested in this. This is for me. And like to an extent, they were just like, so I can, so I'm free. I can, I'm free to be honest. I yeah. can say what I like. And yes, I felt that, really like, free connecting. doing this. Yes, yes, that's it. The word is freedom. I felt a real freedom. I'd like get up at four in the morning and work on this. And at four in the morning, nobody knows, nobody needs you, no emails, no, nothing to do. And just watching the sunrise. And I think that's what you can sort of feel in this book because so much of it was written watching daybreak, looking for light, looking for the sun. So all that kind of hope that you feel when the sun's just rising and the hope you feel when it's a new day. You know, like my poem, each morning we build cathedrals. You know, this kind of idea that <laughs> I'm going to build a cathedral and then obviously by, by tea time, it's like, you know, it's a bag of chips and you've pissed on it, you know. And so... <laughs> like, so that, that that kind of freedom, I um, it's really important, I think, and so therefore some of the things that I wrote in it were really from a place of feeling that freedom and feeling, you know, that. Um, but 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 simply put, with a book with a death in the title, I knew that it. I didn't want it to be heavy to carry because I knew it might be heavy to carry in the heart or heavy to carry in the head. So I didn't want it to be any longer than a, than than a certain size, and I wanted it to be the kind of book you can read during a thunderstorm, and then when the thunder's over, you've sort of finished a book. That kind of feeling, that kind of, you know, or, or um, on a on a train from London to Edinburgh or London to Liverpool, you might get it finished in time. You know, I I feel like a lot of books that are important to the author involve them sort of wrestling with a problem that's basically insoluble right and i i feel like like there was no way that you when you were starting to write this was gonna look at death and then like fit, finish writing the book and go oh i i've like solved death and now it doesn't exist and i am not gonna feel grief anymore and i've like i won't experience the human condition and you knew that and yet like i think all writers in their books that really mean something to them are essentially trying to solve a problem that they know that they can't, but they kind of come to a weird accommodation with it. And I, I wondered if you could talk about what that, pro, what the process was like for you, because this is a time when, you know, like you say, you're spending all the time as you're writing it. Presumably it's like you're drawing in stuff about death. You're like your antennae are up for finding out about deaths and deaths around the world in different ways that people experience death and grief. And every time you were reading the news, like any mention of death, you know, you're drawn towards that because you're you're just like looking for you're like picking berries for your book. And I, I wonder what it was like to live through the process of writing this book and how it might have changed you by the end, whether you feel that process did anything to you. 
Um, I that's interesting. I think I'm still writing the books. I'm still collecting debts. I'm still I'm still there, and I'm still you know. I think um, I think it. I think I definitely well as as. Well, I was healing, so I I and so by my healing, then also Wolf was healing. I think in an early draft, everyone was going to die in the end, including Wolf. So I'm glad that didn't happen. And, and we have like, oh no, is that a massive spoiler alert if someone hasn't read it? But yeah, so so survival. What am I saying with this book? Death teaches us how to live, that death can show us how to live better, I suppose, in a, in a really simplistic sentence. So... So, you know, by by hanging out with death and getting really close to death, Wolf learns how to live or how to let go or how to be free. Um, so maybe I did as well by writing it. Maybe. Do you, <laughs> I, do you, do you think, I, I mean, on any book, like when you try and like boil it down to, to, to what it means, it's like, well, if that were kind of answerable, there would be no need to write the book. It always want you want it to be a dialectic, right, where there's bits that are, arguing with each other like that's the beauty of it yes and those spaces where there's a there there are two opposites and then there's they create an odd space in between them that's neither um that you can't it's like a color that you can't really make in the real world but you see if you close your eyes very quickly i wonder if you could just talk about the kind of some of the style that you've you've chosen because i i love i just i there's something just a lot when we're talking about books and fiction we talk about plot and we talk about you know like moving the story but there's there's a real pleasure to just hearing a character talk to you and tell a story and I wondered if you could go into that a bit more because you started to talk about going down the road and almost like channeling which is another you know form of death it's kind of form of feels like part of this book was a kind of mediumship for you mediumship what's that mean what like you know, a like woo, like a seance? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like 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 when someone yeah. <laughs> goes into a trance and a dead person speaks through them. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that, Tim. Give me a minute. Okay, what do I think about that? I think. Um, okay, so the first thing that came to mind when you were talking is a lot of this book was composed on the lips, which is something I haven't done before. So a lot of this book was 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 written. Um, um, out loud and walking ever since that first piece um, I know a lot of dead people now I was like wow this is kind of how this book wants to be written or how I'm feeling like writing it so a lot of this book was spent walking around talking into my phone and then typing it up when I get home so I think you get a lot of that rhythm in there in the language and you can almost hear my boot heels like walking stomping around East London and and also round Ireland um, so that's the first bit of that um, what else was I going to say the composed on the lips bit. Mm, ah, yeah. And I also wanted to play with the way um, how people feel when they look at words on a page. So there are some pieces in there which are kind of like a cut and paste, chopped up news items, news articles made to look like poems on the page. Because it occurred to me, if you see a really awful story in the news, you read news differently to how you would read a poem. So there's a couple of chapters in there which are uh, presented as poems, but they're actually just chopped up newspaper articles made to look like poems on the page. I think when you read a poem, you might breathe differently. I thought to myself when I did that, that you might you might take some time or have more empathy when you're reading it. 
So there's a couple of uh, pieces, some pieces in there which look like poems but are, but are chopped up news and vice versa. There are some bits that are poems that have been chopped up to look like uh, prose. I played around with that a lot. Poems became prose, prose became news articles, news articles became song lyric. I kind of played around with it quite a bit because um, remembering that when you read something, you might just digest it, process it differently. Mm. I feel like, yeah, we get we get sort of different cues about the role that we're supposed to play with it. And I, 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 yeah, it's funny when you say that it's never occurred to me before, but in news, I feel like we're often not really asked to news. Doesn't often, often doesn't ask us to feel anything when it reports deaths with that's not our role. Our role is just like, here's some information in this country. You are informed. Yeah. And it's not say it's not asking you to be a, human and 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 there's that idea of the kind of like logic of appropriateness they talk about in psychology when we come up with our role where we go what does a person reading a paper how does a person reading a newspaper react to the news and you kind of that's how the persona you almost drop into and it's a different identity when you're a person reading a poem and of course it's different because it's framed in your novel by a poet and by death herself so we've got those two people saying they're, they're being almost like lifted up and recontextualized in a way that encourages us to, I guess it's like defamiliarization, right? It's like showing us something we thought we knew and suddenly we don't recognize it anymore. Mm. I wonder if um you could just talk a little bit about, there's some bits where I feel, especially like even like the opening, right? You open with like a disclaimer, which is like a lovely uh, sort of like sucker punch because I thought, it was like a genuine disclaimer for the book at first. And then I'm like, oh, it's a, this is a bit. And I could really imagine it being like your opening bit on stage as well. I could imagine this, you know, elements of this being a kind of stage play as well, because it was just like such a good, and I wonder if you could talk, actually, this is what, this is the nub of it. In performance poetry, I often think, or in poetry, I think about the kind of game of a piece where you come up with an idea for a list poem and then you kind of play that out in as many ways as you can. You know, what could be, how, where could I take this game? And often the audience is in on it. And I wonder if you could talk about a couple of bits in the book where you've almost come up with a, a kind of game that you follow through, like in the disclaimer where you're saying what isn't going to be contained in the book and what to watch out for and stuff like that. <laughs> you're kind of almost doing like a, a piss take of what, uh, how a book would open. Well, I think with the disclaimer, the disclaimer came quite late um, when I'd almost finished the book, because as I started coming to the end of the book, when I was in the island um, living in this tower, um, kind of I spent like a month living in this tower, Bill Drummond's tower in um, um, County Antrim. And, um, and I started coming to the end of this book and I thought to myself, if anyone ever reads this, they're going to be cross because they're not mentioned. You know how it is? They're going to be cross because they didn't get, or or they're going to be like, why didn't you mention the death of Bob Marley? Or why didn't you mention the death of Marilyn Monroe? And there's so many deaths and so many, you know, and I was like, oh my goodness. So that's kind of where the disclaimer came from, this kind of idea, oh, I better cover my ass a bit. And then I started really laughing, typing it, and I actually really enjoyed, you know, I was actually like, what this book isn't going to do. This book isn't, you know... Um, a self-help book and this book isn't gonna you know hasn't got the cure all or you know um 
Because, uh, yeah, no, uh, um, people, when they review things, of course, now the book's out and I'm seeing these reviews and I'm actually thinking, you know, I've got a couple of bum reviews on on, um, Amazon, which we all get, right? And I'm just like, wow, didn't you read the disclaimer? It said very clearly. (laughs) It's like, you clearly didn't read the disclaimer because some of the things they're disgruntled about are the very things that I said in the disclaimer. Like, oh, I find it a bit triggering. Yes, that's what we did sort of say, you know, <laughs> if you don't like a high death count. <laughs> it's, like, it's like people wanting their money back at the end of a ghost ride. Yeah. Um, but um, so, yeah, that those that, I think your question is, is just making me think of the word playful. And I think the disclaimer and other areas of the book, I was having fun with it. I was being playful and playing playing with it, um, not laughing at death, not that death isn't, you know, a painful um, and scary thing, but just the, 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 just to sort of be playful in the way that we're talking about it. Um, like, for example, in the Australia chapter, um, what I'm trying to illustrate there is how a piece of news... Um, goes through the filter of loads of people and then by the end of that that chapter it's the people down the pub and they're just swearing fluently so it starts off as a really clean piece of of news it reported news then just gets more and more sweary to the end so it's just a load of swearing it's kind of a there's a lot of that in the book what I'm imagining is um how stories get told and retold and and how they alter and change who's telling depending on who's telling it and who's remembering it and that that kind of um and uh, you know over the time and over years stories get sort of distorted and and different retellings of tales of different things so I was trying to show that I'm not sure if I managed it but yeah I, I felt like there's a there's a thread in the book that stories are not the antidote to death but they're kind of like a a cons- consolation and a kind of bridge between life and death you know that they're like from the very first kind of like art the kind of cave paintings all the way through that there's this that that kind of mistranslation and elaboration and myth making is its own form of life continuing is what I kind of that like what I was kind of like adding to it and pulling out of it that the, 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 the very act of kind of speaking it's it's why and I think you know also because it's kind of like it's done in monologues as well but it's it's why it kind of like has airs of kind of like Beckett for me when I was reading it is that kind of like that voice against the void kind of thing is filling the space is what I kind of got out of it and why the poetry for me works does so much work because you need those blank spaces and those breathing points I guess Mm. yeah um that's that's interesting you've picked up on that in that early chapter death herself actually says and then they started painting on cave paintings and that's when it got interesting for me like so I'm kind of I am inferring that that death enjoys the stories and that death kind of enjoys being the center of attention um this kind of idea the way that death that that death always rails against her sister life oh she's the attention seeker with the blossom and she's here but I think in many ways death is the attention seeker and she's kind of talking about herself a little bit I think there like she's always kind of poo-pooing her sister for wanting the time of her life lifetime once in a lifetime but it's kind of death that you know that wants the big show you know that that wants uh, the stories of her also to be to be retold that's true yeah Mm, interesting I feel like um were we both at a Tung Fu gig the, where 
that ended up being about death. Did I imagine that we were both did that am I misremembering do you remember yes. where there was somebody who was a kind of end of life counsellor who gave her sort yes, of account I do. of sitting with people who are terminally ill because I remember that gig being one <laughs> I remember it particularly because like not really being prepared for that being the subject matter I didn't have anything appropriate <laughs> for the gig so I was just like maybe I was a bad booking but I remember your you did some memoir that went down really well and like really fitted me but there was that feeling, I remember her specifically talking about sort of having been with someone who died and having like um, a short period afterwards where the whole world seemed kind of luminous and they were almost just so awake and then someone like bumped in front of them in the queue and suddenly they were back to like mundane life and going, yo, you bastard. And I wondered if like how, when you were kind of like deep in this, how it was affecting your how it's kind of affected you, you know, interacting with the world when thinking about death. Do you think it, it can make us react to life differently? Because, like, you know, a lot of the time we think about, you know, don't be morbid, don't think about death. Like, good mental health is not dwelling and ruminating on dark stuff, right? Um, and you started writing this when you were feeling very, very low, when your head was full of dark thoughts. So I wondered if, like, what is the upside of these of these things for you? Oh wow. Um wow. I don't know really. I I do remember okay, let's go to the back to the beginning that was but um so I do remember that gig and I remember that was around the time when I was trying to promote the memoir Springfield Road. Um which is sadly out of print now. Um but yeah, I I um was reading from that and that amazing woman. I think Rachel Rose Reed read as yeah, well. Yeah, she did. Yeah, that's right. Um yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. Um and so what was your question sorry, I'm so sorry. I, I just I just was like I was just freewheeling a little bit there but I I, I was talking about like <laughs> you I, I you well I guess I'm asking what do you think the value do you think we need to talk about death more and you know you started writing this when you were feeling particularly low and I know it's been a rough year so that might still be true to an extent but like you clearly felt like you it was something that needed to come out and I just wonder you know is there a value about us discussing death and how can we you know I think face I think darkness? it's important Tim I think it's important Tim I mean the irony isn't lost on me that I started um that I you know have been started writing this work feeling anxious and worried about things and and depressed and frightened um and then it's published when i'm when i'm back there in this place again with bereavement and family worries and so in my own family as i'm sure for anyone that's reading this as well so but i think that the the talking about death is important i think talking about mourning talking about grief talking about the 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 different emotions it's not all always all crying is it sometimes it's laughter and sometimes it's happy memories sometimes it's relief and sometimes you know because maybe someone was in a lot of pain or you know so but talk, i think talking's really important we we've got a very funny way around death in in this society in britain um i'm not really i'm not really sure what 
what I'm trying to say there, but it just feels very stifled. It feels very sandwich on a paper plate and sipping a sherry and standing there going, he had a good innings. And I don't want anyone to ever act like that at my funeral. I want everyone like naked and having like an amazing orgy party and drinking loads of absinthe and having like the best time and loads of music and dancing, you know? Um, Because that, that just would be brilliant. Although I'd want to be there and then I'd be jealous. But maybe I would be there. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, well, that's because you and you do and you do talk that does come up in the book as as, as well. That kind of very like the, the, the just having rituals around death doesn't really help if you're using them to kind of hide inside, right? Like if you're using cliches that feel very safe, like we we you can deliver the line he had a good innings. And no one's going to go like, how fucking dare you say such a... <laughs> that's what, like, the, the people aren't going to like stop and there'll be a shock silence. It's like completely safe. Whereas anything else and you, you're stepping out into something where you are making yourself vulnerable and that's a really terrifying space. And like, I don't, I don't know. Like, are you, is this something you're still working through? Have you, you know, in researching the book and learning about it, were there any traditions or people or examples of people engaging with death that you thought fuck that's that's how I want it needs to be um I'll tell you something that's come up with this book is I want I want when we're allowed to travel again I want to look into the geography of griefing is there such a thing as a geography of mourning because I remember before lockdown um and before this, I was starting to just not do whole Mrs. Well, I done I did four Mrs. Death gigs with music, um, but before that, um, I did just just slipping in a little piece of the book in between my poems in poetry gigs, and I found it really fascinating that when I'd switch up to the death talk to talking in this kind of slightly darker tone to what people are used to me doing, when I when I read some of this book in Edinburgh. It was raucous. It was like a wake. It was like everyone's like yelling and raising their glasses. It was very raucous. And then I read the, that that same week. I read the exact same extract in Bloomsbury, and everyone was crying. I started crying. It was a big cry. We all had a big cuddle. I was like, "Is there such a thing as as kind of you know that there's difference between the way we receive information and the way we but I mean maybe it's just different gigs." But it's the same material and it's the same person speaking it. I remember I read exactly the same extract in Leicester, in the Midlands now, and uh, in a theatre setting, and it was complete silence. And I thought, oh, I felt like I'd, I felt like I'd done a big, big, uh, you know, big mistake sharing that in in my poetry gig. And then complete silence after I finished reading. And this one woman stands up, going beautiful and like clapping beautiful, and then everyone started clapping. So that was like a sort of a strange response as well, like a kind of weird silence. And so, yeah, I wonder if if we react to death differently in different parts of the country, because I think we react to death differently as different people within our families. You know, you know, you might have one family member that's going, you know, you know, and then another family member sort of shrugs and, and I'll see if I can make it. And then you're all, you know, everyone sort of reacts very differently, but also across the country and from city to city and county to county country to country and 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 yeah it's 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 very strange i think very interesting i'd like to learn more and do more research i i I think i i feel like i feel very comfortable 
talking about death in the abstract and going, oh, we need to talk about death more. And I'm aware of my (laughs) own hypocrisy in talking about that because, you know, I was... I was like first, my first experience of bereavement was when I was like seven and my granddad died suddenly while we were on holiday. And um, it was, it, it started a kind of business of me of wanting to just, of being a bit irritated at people mourning like visibly to me because I, it brought up feelings in me that made me feel uncomfortable. And I just wanted to kind of shove it all um, into a cupboard somewhere and lock that cupboard and never have to deal with it because it was just it see it seemed so sort of it was it was just like this terrifying stash that was getting bigger and bigger that I was and it, and it, and, it, and you know the rest of my sort of life has been the slow work of kind of opening that cupboard up and kind of going through all the shit and going uh, and so I think it's like it's worth saying that like all of those responses you're describing are different like legitimate ways of people dealing with it aren't they you know they're all they're all uh-huh. uh, yeah it's there's no one prescribed route but it's just so it's just so hard because it is like it like you say it's like the it's it's not a good thing like we can't get to a stage where you go oh I, I love it that people that i care about are going to get old and then pass away like no one wants that and so you know you're trying i feel like you've set yourself this kind of like really almost impossible task of like turning the reader's head towards this horrible thing and then and then finding hope and meaning in spite of and sometimes because of that yeah well i don't know what to say to that but thank you i mean that was i mean i'm glad that 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 i that it feels like that for you as a reader to feel like I'm making you turn your head to look at this thing and then showing you that there's hope there, that there's life there, that there's, yeah, that's, that's good that you felt like that. Um, Cause I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted, I wanted it to feel that there's, there is hope and, and that there is, you know, this, this incredible courage and strength. Yeah. That, that we have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you said with this, um, you kind of like felt almost, it came almost like a bolt from the blue is that your normal way of work of, of, of working do you have to wait for things to completely strike you or can you kind of think I want to write about subject x and you start pulling at it and working at it and trying to dig something out oh no that's interesting I think different things come in different ways don't they you have those things that are like some sort of magical moment like lightning strike moment and then you have things that are just, just like a niggle that are just going round and round in your head. Um, or, you know, I try, I really try to write from a place of creation as opposed to a place of reaction. Um, the last ideas in particular have been tough because there's just been so much to react to. There's been so much scary stuff, political stuff, really, 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 really scary stuff. <laughs> um and and so you end up writing like I mean I've got I mean I've got so many anti Theresa May poems for example <laughs> just because I really particularly something about her I just and obviously I didn't publish them all but oh my gosh I really that woman just something about her just really and you know so but then you end up with a whole pile of poems that have come from a place of reaction a very strong reaction um, and I I don't I'm not sure how good that work is in comparison. To the work that's come from idea and 
earth and creation and 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 I, I kind of like that side of my work more. They're both valid, I guess, but I think I like those ones more if that answers your question. I like the things yeah. where you're sort of walking down the road and you notice a colour or or you hear an ice cream van and it makes you think of something. I like those kind of just more than the angry reaction ones. Yeah. Is it, do you think there's any way to kind of uh, make yourself more sensitive or receptive to those little moments of those aha moments? Do you think there's ways that sort of someone can, um, you know, I, I suppose if inspiration is an accident, make themselves more accident prone? Um, okay, so I think the main thing to do with all of that is to get off your phone switch off the internet, unplug all electri- electrical goods, in fact, and and go outside, because going outside is going inside. Uh, the second a bit of advice I'd say for that is dreams. Pay attention to your dreams. Your, your dreams are often, your best ideas are often in your dreams for geography or location or characters or flavours or feelings. Um, a lot of my work, I feel like a thief, really, a thief in the night. A lot of my work are dreams. In um, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, the Red Tower, for example, was a very vivid, recurring dream. And Tilly Tuppence was a very vivid dream. And I Googled her, and there is no such thing as Tilly Tuppence, but she's so real to me. Like, I think she's like a, a memory or a past life or something. I don't know. She feels very, very real. Um, so dreams, I think, are really important. Um, and yeah, just just sort of paying attention to that voice. I think the biggest killer, the biggest killer is Twitter. It's it's you you sitting there on the internet. I think that definitely kills my ideas. Um, if I wake up in the in the morning and the first thing I reach for is my phone, my my, my day is fucked. I can't get anything else done. Not really any good work because I'm already worrying about something or I'm reacting to something or I'm sad about something and I've forgotten my dreams and I've forgotten why I'm here and what my purpose is. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really trying to cut down on my internet use. I don't think it's good for me at all. Yeah. If, if, if Twitter is so stressful, makes you feel sad and worried for the future of the world and judged and angry and all those things, why <laughs> yeah, do you think like it's everyone, so yeah. compulsive? You know, like knowing all that, why do we? Why are we still like? Yeah, I think I think what there's lots of answers. Obviously, because we're in lockdown, all my friends are in my phone, all my friends are in my social media because I can't see anyone, and I'm I am a I am a social creature, and that you know, um, so there's one answer. But the second answer for me is uh, I'm very. I'm a very DIY artist. I've always felt very much that I roll my sleeves up and sell my work myself. Although this book, Mrs. Death, is out with Canongate, previous to that, so much of my work has been DIY or crowdfunded. And I haven't really ever got out of the habit of feeling like I've got to peddle my stuff myself. Um, It's like a bucket of water. You don't trust someone else to carry it and not spill it, you know. I will carry my own bucket of water and I will not spill a drop. So it's kind of like that. I mean, if your dreams are in a bucket of water, you know, you're not going to let someone else take care of your dream. You look after your own dreams. So my dreams and ambitions and what I want to achieve of my work and what I want to be when I grow up, that's all kind of contained in kind of being, you know, being able to swallow my pride a bit and be a bit of a saleswoman um, and a bit of a hustler, you know, which also comes from being working class and, and being... 
and being a Selena shaped Selena there wasn't I didn't really have anyone to copy when I was younger or like I thought really felt like I was doing something my own way um my own rules and in a very male um white dominated male scene in the 90s particularly so I think it's that it's old habits die hard really so even though you know this book's with Canongate, I still feel like I've got to got to plug it, like and push for it, and and you know, and 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 if we were doing festivals, I'd probably have it copies of it in my little you know, mobile bookshop, my little suitcase bookshop. I love that. Um, my partner helped me make a bookshop. It's like a suitcase. It's got fairy lights in it, and it's just like you know. So after I do a gig, it's like ding, and then I've got my own little <laughs> shop right there <laughs> with all like t-shirts and. Zines and chapbooks and things to sell. I don't think I'll ever get out of that habit. Well, because your work, and also because your work covers, you, you know, it, you you do you do nonfiction, you do poetry, you do music, and now you've got like novel as well. So you've you you know you've had memoir, essays, music, poetry, page and stage, and novels. Like there's no. There's no one entity that can flog all those for you anyway. So it's always going to be, you're always going to be the kind of like the axle from those, all those, but that's a bad metaphor, but you get the idea. Like yeah. it's always going to be coming from you. How has it been like for you right, working across multiple media? Because like some people I speak to, they can't imagine like they speak oh. of like, you know, the fiction writers and they talk about the poets as if we're like another species. They're like, I could never do, I could never do a poem. And I'm just like, well, in some ways it's kind of like just a sentence. You can do those, right? Like just yeah. do a sentence and put line breaks in. No, but you know what I mean? And yet you're straddling all the, so how's that been for you? Like straddling all these different scenes and these to different worlds? To be honest worlds? with you, it's really easy because basically as soon as something feels like work, I'll work on something else. As soon as something's not playing, then, so like, for example, say if I have an, um, a deadline in for an essay, then I will go and work on a poem behind my own back. Or <laughs> <Like, laughs> well, say if I've got like a poetry thing I'm meant to be working on, then I'll go and start a whole new essay. Or, you know, or, or very much, for example, Mrs. Death was what I was working on when I had deadlines for other things. So I'm constantly rebelling against my own thing that I want to do. It's really childish, but it's kind of like that. And then in the play and in that freedom, the work comes. So to me, they all feel, like you said, they all feel like they come from the same place. I've always said this. I feel like as a, as a writer, you are, you are a chef in the kitchen or in a bakery. Imagine a beautiful bakery. And in the shop window right now, I've got Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, lovely new copies of the new thing and you know and pessimism is for lightweight but then back in the kitchen i've got things in the freezer i've got some things in the oven some things on top of the hob some things are marinating you know and then some things you know you never throw anything out ever because it can be recycled and made into something else you know and so that that's kind of how it is the kitchen's always busy there's all sorts of stuff going on um um, and often what, and, you know, and I often have like a whole bunch of stuff that I'm making because as soon as something's in the shop window and people could have opinions about it, then I need to quickly make something that I like even better so then it won't hurt if they don't like it. <laughs> oh, I really I really get those feelings. Do you think, because um, like my impression of Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is that it's people are really, really enjoying it. It's connecting with them. People are... 
loving it. People are kind of talking about it, certainly on my social media. And in the it's amazing, like... isn't it? How, yeah, it's how is amazing. That? Is, is I've that... never known anything like it. How how is that? When I spoke to um, Guy Gunnar Ratney, who wrote in our Mad and Furious City, which is an amazing novel, but he talked about like that, him having that experience and suddenly being like, I have to now shut all those people out being nice. It wasn't the critics. It was all the people going, I love this and go, okay, those people need to go away now and I'm going to come back to them and I'm going to later and I'm going to say, I've written a new thing. Might not be for you, but I haven't made you any promises, but I just, he just needed them to not be in his head while he was writing because otherwise there were a group of people who might be disappointed because he wanted the freedom to do something completely different. And I wondered if, I know you might not be able to talk about what you're working on at the moment, but how it's been affecting your writing practice to suddenly have loads of people going. I mean, you've always had people who love your work, but like all these people going, wow, I love this novel, you know, like have like a sense of an audience who might have expectations forming around what you write. It feels it feels very magical. I've, um, it feels I feel very humbled by it. I feel very excited by it. Um I feel responsible as well, like some amazing, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, like private messages, DMs, um, direct messages, and letters and emails of people sending me what they're doing with the final pages. I don't know if you remember at the end of the book, um, people can make like a kind of shrine at the back of the book to the dead oh, that wow. they want so to you, remember. I, I never thought, of course, that people will be letting you know about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So people have been sending me photographs of how they've made a collage of like um, put photographs and pictures and poems in the back of their copies of their book and then sending me photos of that. Um, so that I feel very responsible and very part of a ritual, very part of something with that. Um, yeah, no, amazing. Um, it's been an amazing response. The book's been out exactly two months now and it's just been amazing. My phone is just full filled with strangers. Who, who who were telling me about their mourning and their grief and their love and, and how the book touched them. And, you know, it's just incredible. Um, how does it affect my writing? Well, to be honest with you, part, part of it really inspires me to get going and get, get on with the next thing um, um, and keep, you know, strike while the iron's hot, which is very much my sort of, you know, sort of determined work ethic. You know, keep going, keep going like a little machine. Um, but there's a part of me that also needs to chill out a little bit because, you know, there's major changes going on in my life, in my family, personal things, scary things. And then in the bigger world, COVID pandemic. And it's, it's not easy to write about hope and light in a time when there is so much dark and shadow. So I don't want it to sound forced and like a cheerleader, you know, it's got to come from a place of honesty and truth and, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I am writing, but nowhere near as much as normal. So I'm 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 writing less, but n- not none. Yeah. I've often struggled with that. Selena is like as as you you know probably know like I have like my own issues with sometimes feeling really really bloody dreadful, and you know I've sometimes been in those places, and then I've been doing the podcast, and I've wanted you know switching on the switching on the pressing record and I feel like I'm (laughs) I sometimes feel like I'm recording going 
Hello everybody! Hi kids! We're going to talk about writing with sort of like mascara streaking down my face and the whole room like stinking of like I poured petrol everywhere and I'm holding like a match and I'm going, let's sing the lo- writing is lovely song. And and, and, and and like I don't feel like that at all and at some level I sometimes feel in those moments like I wondered, I just wondered, just to ask, wonder what your feeling is like when we've often gone to writing as a, like you said at the beginning that you used it as an escape. Sometimes it was a way of surviving. It was a way early on in your life of like it was something you went to. When it it doesn't, what do we do when it doesn't seem like it's enough? You know, because often of those times when I feel least like writing, I also feel this incredible pressure. Like this is when writing, when I should, you know, this is what I should be writing about. You know, as a yeah. writer, pain should be driving me. It should be pouring out of me. <laughs> Yeah. How how I wonder if you've got any reflection on how you've like dealt with that feeling yeah. of like I but I feel like that as well. And I, I used to always particularly when I was a bit when I was younger, like pain was where the writing came from. Um but but being able to write when you're happy is a is a is a skill you learn, isn't it? It's something to so that, you know, you're not always writing from this place of, you know, of sort of at the edge of the cliff like you can write from the happy place too um you know so that's that that is something you learn as you get older i think um but just to be just to be true and just to be and back to what we were saying earlier to that feel that freedom that that to write you know as if as if no one's gonna it's like that thing dance like no one's looking write like no one's gonna read it you know it's a really nice freedom you know yeah um, but yeah, to just to be true and, and true to the moment. And I don't think anyone is, is expecting anyone to be, you know, 100% at the moment with the, with everything that's going on. But there is, you know, hope on the horizon. There is blossom on the trees where, you know, we're getting the vaccine. It's just, you know, um, but yeah, this is a one hell of a strange time to be a writer. One hell of a strange time. That's a, that's a fact. I think, and I think, I think you're right. I think that sometimes the reason that in that pain, the you then look at what you're writing and you don't want to write anything and it seems shit is because often I'm not being authentic. Like, like what I'm doing is I'm trying to write the thing I think people want me to say. And what I want to say is like, everything's fucked. Like, do you know what I mean? That's like what you're feeling authentically at that moment. But you go, you can't, I can't say that. That will be unpopular and that will seem like I'm whinging. And so you don't find ways of giving voice to what it feels like to be a human in a moment of feeling genuine hopelessness, right? Like you, you instead you kind of go, right, you shut up and I'm going to say, well, you know, and we need all of those things, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think we do. I think we do. I know what you mean. You don't ever want to sound like you're complaining because there's always someone worse off than you. There's always someone, you know, and it's and it's really important to count our blessings and count, you know, our luck and and to enjoy enjoy the good bits because you know, um, you know. But it, yeah, I don't know what I was trying to say there. But just 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 to write some somewhere from some from authenticity and to write something honest and true, even if that isn't a particularly comfortable truth. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, and I think that get that's 
I suppose that exp- also explains why the freedom stuff often produces writing that is exciting to others as well as yourself, because when you're free to not worry, I mean, you can come back later and edit stuff, right, and throw stuff out. Like, you, you go back later and go, maybe I don't need to say that, or you can pick, pick and choose. But I suppose what you're capturing is something, if you're free, then you're free to say stuff that, you know like might not be you might imagine won't be very popular with people and sometimes that ends up being exactly the thing that resonates with people because no one else is saying it and they go fine like they breathe out like i'm sure you've had that you read something and you just go i remember being i I remember i remember being at a wedding and somebody i won't like say hugh but like one family member said of another family member oh God, he's being such a grumpy asshole, And like, that was never said by anyone else. Like, it was like, don't mention this. And I actually just started laughing and crying simultaneously. I was like, finally, someone's not so scared of this person that they're prepared to say it out loud. And hearing that truth that you weren't allowed to say, I was just like, oh my God, like, it was really emotional for me. And I, I think that's, you know, that can maybe is what's coming out in, in your work as well, is like that moment of people going, finally, someone has given it, is given it voice. Yeah, some pe- yeah I've, had, I have had some really nice feedback um, where people have said thank you for, for talking about death or for all of that. Also as well, you know, my main character, Wolf, is uh, non-binary. And to have a lead character that, that where there's no pronouns, that was actually a really difficult thing to write. To write a main character for an entire novel where you never say he or she was quite a tricky write, actually. And also to, to, to sort of give that person voice and space. And why shouldn't the hero, you know, not, not be conventional, you know? Yeah. Um, thanks so much, uh selena for like talking about this i really really appreciate it and thanks for sort of um listening to my sort of slightly <laughs> slightly mm-hmm. madcap theories i, I realize that sometimes i'm sort of explaining someone's book back to them and, <laughs> and, and and leave little more than for them to like either agree or go no tim that's bollocks but like it's uh, it's because i'm enthusiastic about it um, if people want to find you online and your work what's the best way for them to do that um, they can go to my website, which is www.selinagodden.co.uk, or they can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm kind of not really on Twitter or Facebook at the moment. Instagram's the one. I find Instagram a bit softer, so I'm just pop on there every now and then. Yeah. Awesome. I'll put links to that in the um, show notes. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Tim. It's so lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you too. And to everyone listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. Thank you. Wonderful week.